Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. We've got two interrelated interviews this week. The first is with Julia Carey Wong, senior technology reporter for The Guardian, based in Silicon Valley. This week, she published a series of articles based on interviews and documents from Sophie Zhang, a Facebook whistleblower who came forward to reveal how the social media company has repeatedly allowed world leaders and politicians to use its platform to deceive the public or harass opponents. The second is with Maria Ressa. She is co-founder of Rappler, the top digital-only news site that leads the fight for press freedom in the Philippines. She has endured constant political harassment and arrests by the Duterte government and still has the fight to stay free. Rappler's battle for truth and democracy is the subject of the 2020 Sundance Film Festival documentary, A Thousand Cuts. Maria has a 35-year career in journalism. For her work on disinformation, she was named Time Magazine's 2018 Person of the Year, was among its 100 most influential people of 2019, and also has been named one of the publication's most influential women of the century. The two interviews fit together because Maria Ressa has been reporting on and living through the exact phenomena Julia Carey Wong reported on last week in The Guardian. Let's get started with Julia Carey Wong and the latest on her series of articles for The Guardian. My name is Julia Carey Wong. I'm senior tech reporter at The Guardian U.S. So you had a big piece this week that really traveled around tech corners quite a lot. Tell me a little bit about it. This week, a whistleblower at Facebook decided to go public in The Guardian to discuss her experience at Facebook working on their fake engagement team. Her name is Sophie Zhang, and I have been working with her for the past couple months to report out a lot of really troubling allegations that she has, uh, which have been backed up with a lot of documentary evidence of how Facebook has been dealing or often not dealing with the problem of political actors manipulating Facebook's system in order to kind of distort political discourse around the world. What are these campaigns and what exactly is going on here? that Sophie Zhang was so concerned about? So when when Sophie went to work for Facebook, she was assigned to a team whose job it was to address fake engagement. Um, So engagement on Facebook is basically anything that's not content creation. So, right, content might be a post or adding a video or adding a photo. But when you engage with that content, Facebook is obviously collecting data about all of those engagements and those engagements serve as inputs into all of the various um, algorithms that Facebook has to determine, you know, what gets pushed in the newsfeed and what does not. So the main categories of engagements would be likes, shares, comments, reactions. And there are a couple of important things about engagement. For one thing, it's perceptual. So if you have two politicians, one has 100,000 fans and one has 1,000 fans, the press, the public are going to treat those two politicians very differently. Similarly, you know, if a politician or an elected official posts something on Facebook and it gets 10,000 likes, 
as opposed to 10 likes, that tells a story what people on Facebook will perceive what that politician has said in very different ways, depending on the amount of engagement it has. Similarly, if something gets 10,000 shares versus 10 shares, there's going to be a different scene in how the news algorithm, the newsfeed algorithm treats that piece of content. So everything in Facebook is measured and everything goes into these algorithms. So of course, people try to cheat the system because of course, newsfeed is so powerful. So fake engagement is basically any kind of engagement that comes from either fake or compromised accounts, or as we saw from what Sophie discovered, can also come from inauthentic pages. So in a lot of cases around the world, fake engagement, you know, has become kind of a business. There are websites that you can go to, to self-compromise your own page. And in exchange for that, you might be, you can sign up for like an auto liker service And every time you post something on Instagram or every time you post something on Facebook, you can be assured that you will get 200 likes and that will make your page, you know, look a little bit better in certain ways. That kind of stuff is very low quality and uh, Facebook is pretty good at detecting it automatically and negating its effects. She kept discovering and uncovering manually operated fake engagement networks that were more sophisticated than just a scripted, automated auto-liker. Because of that, they were much more difficult for Facebook to detect because it wasn't just something that, you know, was, was being scripted. Often these were being used specifically on political figures in order to manipulate what they looked like online. In some cases, it was just a question of, you know, creating the false perception of popularity. But in other cases... This was actually being used to harass and in an attempt to silence dissident voices. So on some level, people expect that this sort of thing is happening on on Facebook. And we have seen many different examples of it. And um, of course, the platforms themselves reporting on the removal of of, uh, coordinated and inauthentic behavior. But this story is really not so much about that. It's about Facebook's response and the internal dialogue about these things. Can you tell us just a little bit more about that and about some of the personalities involved? The most famous kind of example of this kind of deceptive political behavior on Facebook is the Russian influence operation that took place ahead of the 2016 election. And then for almost a full, I I think over a year after the election, it was still going on. And when that happened, Facebook by 2018, Facebook kicked and screamed and dragged its feet. But eventually by 2018, they were willing to admit that this had happened, that they had allowed this to happen. And they put in place a process by which they were going to address this. So they set up a special, you know, this team threat intelligence, which is kind of this elite team inside Facebook that is tasked with uncovering these deceptive networks. They came up with a policy definition for coordinated and authentic behavior or CIB. And so they kind of put in place this infrastructure and bureaucracy that they said was going to deal with this behavior. They also put in place kind of a process by which when they found CIB campaigns, they said that they were going to disclose them to the public along with attribution. So Of course, it's difficult to find out who is behind these deceptive campaigns, but that is part of what the threat intel team does is 
they try to reach, you know, reasonable attribution. And then they said that they were going to disclose those to the public. What Sophie Zhang found while she was working at Facebook was that there was kind of this middle ground where there was deceptive behavior happening. It was coordinated. It was inauthentic. And it was, you know, damaging the ability for people to have authentic political conversations on Facebook. It was manipulating that. But in many cases, the threat intel team and the executives that were in charge didn't want to make the call and say, okay, yes, this is CIB. We're going to go ahead and sign our elite investigators and do an investigation and take it down. So, for example, when she discovered that the page administrator for the president of Honduras, so somebody that had direct access to post as the president of Honduras, this is obviously a staff member for the president who was also the page admin for the president's sister, who was the minister of communications for Honduras before her death. When she discovered that that person was running hundreds of inauthentic pages and using them to create fake engagement on uh, Juan Orlando Hernandez's Facebook page, she brought that to Threat Intel and said, this looks like CIB. Can we have an investigation and look into it? And ultimately, it took 11 months for them to actually take that seriously and take it down. It basically took, she discovered it in August of 2018. And she knocked on all the doors, had meetings, met with people, tried to get people to take it seriously. And it took until June of the next year for Facebook to finally assign a threat intel investigator to look into it. This was not a difficult case to make attribution because this guy, you you know, the evidence was right there. It was the page admin for the president that was connected to it. Facebook can see who is running a page, even though the public cannot see that. And so then finally, once they actually said, okay, we'll do this, then it only took, you know, just over a month for them to actually do the takedown. Although then again, what Zhang found was that pretty quickly there were attempts to come back and and continue doing the activity. And she kept finding recidivism and she frequently found just little appetite from threat intel and from that team to address the recidivism and take it, you know, continually enforced against this and prevent the president of Honduras from, from still doing this. Partly it's just a matter of the fact that Honduras is not the biggest country in the world and not on the radar of maybe Facebook's investors. Is that part of it? I mean, it's just sort of below the level of concern from a PR perspective. The analysis that Sophie Zhang came to, which I, which I tend to agree with, was that there's a couple of factors. Facebook very openly internally discusses that it uses kind of ruthless prioritization metrics. So when she would have discussions with, say, Guy Rosen, who is Facebook's vice president of integrity, which is the the department that is supposed to oversee all of these safety integrity issues, he would say, you know, we have to follow our priorities. And those priorities are the U.S. and Western Europe come first, other wealthy countries come next, and then the rest of the countries, you know, maybe if something blows up in the news or if there's serious violence or societal unrest going on, then they might get higher on the list. But in general, it seems that Facebook is, you know, mostly focusing on large, wealthy Western countries. Um, They do have 
you know, a system where they designate certain countries as at risk. And that means that they should get a higher level of attention from Facebook staff. But, you know, Honduras is a country that is a considered an at-risk country and that did not help in that case. They also say that they, and they do uh, definitely pay more attention when a country has upcoming elections. But that, again, is not always a great proxy for where attention is needed. The other big CIB campaign that Sophie uncovered was in Azerbaijan. And Azerbaijan is an autocratic country. They have elections, but they're not free elections. There's no meaningful choice and they're not treated as real elections. So Facebook's elections team didn't have Azerbaijan on its list of things of countries that needed special attention. And yet, because they don't have elections, I think from from my perspective, from an outside perspective, that is all the more reason to be, you know, vigilant and make sure that you're not allowing the government and the ruling party to abuse your platform in order to silence and harass dissidents and independent journalists. Tell me a little bit about the response to the story that you've had. Um, have you, you know, had any more communication um, from Facebook about it or other individuals that have been in touch with you about sort of similar things? I mean, I've been going back and forth with Facebook because we did, but we published five articles throughout the week. So I've been in touch with them, continuing to, you know, do fact checking and, and try to make sure that the pieces are all accurate. Um, they largely have not engaged with the vast majority of the claims. I, I mean, they've, they've just not disputed any of the claims. They say that they disagree with how Zhang characterizes her experience and, and, and her view of how Facebook works, but they've not waited in to dispute any of the facts. The one time that they did dispute a fact came in the final story, which we published today about India. The story is about how in 2019, uh, Sophie discovered four kind of semi-sophisticated networks of fake accounts that were supporting various politicians in India. One of them was supporting an MP in the BJP, which is the Hindu nationalist ruling party of India. And the staff had approved takedowns for all four of these networks. But right before they were about to do the takedown of the one relate connected to the or the one that was supporting the BJP MP, the, the staffer who was carrying out the takedown realized that the MP's own account was in the network, which was not definitive evidence, but was strong evidence that either this MP or his staff was personally involved in coordinating this fake engagement on his behalf. And at that point, everything stopped and they did not carry out the enforcement. Facebook, I have seen documents backing up this sequence of events. Facebook tried to tell us that it was not true that they had taken down the accounts. They then, after I pointed out that the documents exist, changed their story multiple times and they're now claiming that they took some of the accounts down in May and that this did not have anything to do with the policy team. But it does raise a lot of questions because there has been a lot of reporting by the Wall Street Journal, by Bloomberg, by other um, outlets about concerns in India that that Facebook is too close to the BJP and too close to Modi. There's a great reporting in the Wall Street Journal last August about how the then head of public policy in India was overruling other staff when it came to um, enforcing against hate speech violation 
for a particular BJP leader who was really inciting violence against um, Indian Muslims. And so again, I think that this story kind of raises concerning questions about what's going on with Facebook seeming to have a lower standard for rule enforcement against the ruling party in India than it does against regular people, which is kind of a pattern that we've seen in other countries as well, including in the U.S. with Donald Trump. I was going to say that, you know, of course, uh, American listeners who have followed closely the stories of Facebook and um, the the role of Joel Kaplan in doing uh, what sounds like some very similar things, you know, with regard to uh, figures in the United States associated with uh, Donald Trump or the Trump campaign. Uh, It sounds very similar. Exactly. And and this is one of the um, kind of the arguments that Sophie Zhang is making. And it's something that other former Facebook employees have made as well, which is that Facebook's policy department has two remits, which are kind of just inextricably conflicted with each other. On the one hand, the policy department kind of has a global diplomatic mission where they have staffers in, you know, in many countries around the world, it's their responsibility to maintain positive ties with the governments of those countries to ensure that regulation doesn't go through that will hurt Facebook. So they're very much in, you know, this kind of like pseudo state department that represents Facebook's interest around the world. The other part of the policy team is more like a legislative branch. They're the people that write Facebook's rules and that advise the content moderators and other operations staff who are tasked with enforcing those rules. And of course, if you have the same people overseeing, maintaining good relations with government officials and enforcing rule violations by government officials, there's a real conflict of interest there. And I think that we you know, keep seeing that come to pass when Facebook shies away from enforcing its own rules against those who are most powerful. You've had this series of articles. I guess I'd ask maybe two questions. First, what's next for, for Sophie Zhang, who is, you know, your, your source for most of this coverage this week? And then, you know, what's next for you? What will you move on to next? Um, so Sophie has been out of work since she was fired. And I think that she is interested in now. I, I, I mean, I, I know that she, she, she felt like she couldn't really job hunt while she was planning to go public in this way because it wouldn't be fair to her next employer. But I think that she had said that she's now interested in, you know, potentially doing work in kind of civic integrity, protecting democracy type spaces. She's a data scientist. I am about to take a short vacation um, and go see my family, which I haven't seen for a year because we're now all vaccinated. Well, you deserve that. Um, (laughs) Thank you. I hope that uh, uh, things do work out for Sophie. She clearly took a huge risk in this uh, after two and a half years at Facebook. And of course, again and again, we've seen individuals who have seen something that they believe to be wrong and have uh, attempted to kind of go through the channels internally there only to find themselves frustrated enough to go to the press. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do honestly believe that, that what she has said was that going public was the very last option. Um, and she certainly, you know, knocked on so many doors inside Facebook and I think tried as hard as she could to make change internally before she decided that that she needed to go public in this way. We have a record of that, that effort. So to you, we have great thanks. Well, thank you so much for having me, Justin. I appreciate it.
Next up, we speak with Maria Ressa, co-founder of Rappler, the top digital-only news site in the Philippines. Ressa is a campaigner for press freedoms and a notable critic of the social media platforms. I caught up with her the morning after she had herself done an interview with former U.S. Secretary of State and presidential candidate Hillary Clinton. We talked about that and from there got into a range of issues, including her perspective on how we will need to come together to build new collaborations and institutions to deal with the advent of social media, just as we did for another technology that changed geopolitics, nuclear weapons. Here's Maria Ressa. My name is Maria Ressa. I am the CEO and president of Rappler, and I'm in Manila in the Philippines. You were telling me before this interview started that you've had kind of a, a whiplash couple of days in terms of your sort of feelings about the world. Why is that? Well, you know, this morning is it was a tough morning because two things. The first two are news related, right? Late last night, I had just done a great conversation with Hillary Clinton. Of course, we spoke about disinformation, the impact on her. I mean, she's really, if you're talking female targets, that's the female target, right? And and what it was like, what she had to do. And then within minutes of ending that, I had to then monitor a presidential address of Duterte and the gap between them just shows you what is wrong with the world, you know, and it's everything combined. How did this happen? What's the role of technology? And then that's coupled with just late last night or yesterday, the the publication of Sophie Zhang's uh, Facebook whistleblower in The Guardian. Again, things that I've known since 2016, because we brought the data to Facebook, how it has allowed leaders to manipulate its people with impunity, right? So again, the same theme. And then, and then you know, all this is against the backdrop, at least in the Philippines. We are in, we have just been released from the severest lockdown, meaning we were right back to the future from a year ago. Um, Yesterday was the first day when it's been slightly released, but this alphabet soup of quarantine names really don't hide the fact that our healthcare system has collapsed. So many people I know are infected, have tested positive, and they cannot get into a hospital. And you get the absolute impunity of having a government official just walk into a hospital room while people are dying in their cars waiting to get in. Okay, well, that's really a depressing morning, isn't it? So, so that's the context. I'm a, I'm a bit melancholy this morning, I guess. Well, let's focus a little bit on the Hillary Clinton discussion. You were you were able to talk with her about disinformation, democracy. Did you find her to be optimistic at the moment? So, look, I I think optimism grows out of action, and this is an empowered woman, very clearly, and also clear that she's lived with this before. There's real power struggles and how information. I mean, propaganda has been around way before technology amped it up to become a behavior modification system. That's the problem, right? So this is this woman who does, who's known about this, has felt it, has been a subject to it, has learned how to deal with it. And I think what was fascinating is, you know, seeing her grapple, and you saw it in the interview, grapple with the shift, 
how she was first in denial herself and then tried to tell people, but no one listened to her. This is in 2016. And then now, I mean, frankly, it's impunity, isn't it? In 2016, we came under attack because we called out the impunity of two powerful forces, Duterte and this brutal drug war and Zuckerberg's Facebook. And that still continues and it is 2021. When you've been in public office as long as Hillary Clinton has, you know what to say, you're articulate, but it was the hard part people don't normally get to uh, is the place where you let down your guard and you're real, right? And I, and that's, as an interviewer, that's where I try to get to, with, especially with public figures. And what I liked about the interview is that she got there really fast. I think this is, this is the Hillary who has come through the fire and, you know, knows. I think, you know, of course we asked her about Biden and what kind of, what is the policy? Where is it headed? She was quite optimistic. Also optimistic that we must do something about Facebook, uh, YouTube, about social media platforms. And, and in that, I, she said some of the harshest words I'd ever heard her say. One of the last questions, so she spoke not just to me, but our members. And one of the last questions she answered was her advice. Because, you know, obviously I'm dealing with the same things. There are many in the Philippines. Our data shows us that women are attacked at least 10 times more than men. And she had all of that. And she was very honest. You know, this isn't easy. There's no easy answer. And then she went through how she got through it. And I think what I liked is it, it goes to these fundamental values. I mean, look, the positive thing about social media and what it has done, because, of course, we feel the negative impact. And we've seen this in you know more than 80 countries around the world, these cheap armies rolling back democracy, attacking people like me. I think it's shown that uh, nations, cultures, the way we used to divide the world and ironically, the very fissures of each of our societies that are being attacked by information operations, identity politics, that in some ways what the social media platforms have proven is that we as human beings, that humanity has actually a lot more in common than we have differences because the very same platform that, that connects 2.8 billion accounts globally, right? is actually manipulating all of us the same way. I mean, that's a really weird way of, you know, finding the upside. But we've always known that people, and this is the part that real leaders touch, that, you know, that our dreams are the same. And to bring that out is tougher. And I think that's where... Facebook misses it. Oh, look, I'm emotional this morning. <laughs> right, I'm you mentioned Julia Carey Wong's piece in The Guardian, which is builds on some reporting that had been in BuzzFeed. It brings the story of, of Sophie Zhang and the memo that she had uh, prepared before her departure, acrimonious departure from Facebook. But there were a lot of new details in this, things we, we hadn't heard. And I personally thought it was certainly the most important story uh, in tech today, if not in the last few weeks, on, on false accounts and on governments using uh, the, the Facebook platform to manipulate politics dozens of countries it looks like it occurred to me that many people like you must have felt somewhat vindicated to to read the 
words of Facebook executives essentially dismissing concerns about this in countries that, you know, aren't America or aren't Western European countries. Did this just sort of feel like a, another piece of evidence in the, in the story to you or, or did you learn anything new in it? So, you know, the reason I am, I feel so strong and have spoken strongly is uh, Sophie's journey is very similar to mine, except we were on the outside. We knew Facebook better than Facebook did in the Philippines. And, uh, and uh, I gave that data and continue to give that data to Facebook. We see it. I feel it. You know, it, again, glass half empty or half full, right? When you're the target, you see the tactics change. And we do both, you know, we do both NPF, we do natural language processing as well as network analysis of it. And we have the information ecosystem on Facebook in the Philippines. So as fact-checking partners of Facebook, we fact-check it. And then we, we look at what networks spread it, kind of like terrorism research, right? We look at these as recidivist networks and we flag them repeatedly. A lot of the things that, that, that were in the article are not new to me, to us. They've, you know, we've been asking for systemic solutions. I understand after 2016 to 2021, after this many years, I understand exactly why it's not moving. And it's part of the reason I joined the Real Facebook Oversight Board. But at the same time, I also realize the role Facebook plays. And I haven't completely given up on them, even though uh, their decisions, because they do know. I came from big organizations. When I worked with CNN and I, I set up the Manila Bureau, I set up the Jakarta Bureau, you know, I understood the gaps, you know, when, when you're out, just the news when I was starting in Southeast Asia, there's a two-week gap between what happens in Manila or what happens in Jakarta versus the getting to headquarters, right? Because they have their own thing. So I, I put in a lot of buffer for corporates and for the information flow. So I was patient from 2016 to 2018, but I also sounded the alarm in 2018 after the Cambridge Analytica scandal when the API, when Facebook shut down the API, which was ironic because they, they said they did two things. They shut down the API at the same time. They also said that, you know, let's get rid of the news. They didn't say it like this, but they said, since it's about family and friends, we'll just keep it to family and friends. And news groups around the world in 2018 had a significant drop in traffic, which meant their actions actually enabled disinformation networks, right? They enabled information operations because where does it spread? Through family and friends, right? And where are the facts? The, the signal they muted, the news organizations. So at that point in time, you know, some groups said that they lost as much as 60% of their traffic. We didn't lose it that much, but we felt it in the Philippines. It's the wrong tactic. I have said this privately and publicly. So I guess Facebook increasingly now is going to have to choose and they will have to do it in the public sphere. And there now may be criminal liability, right? Because it's very clear what is happening. They're going to have to choose between profit or public good. That's ironic. Lots of companies have been forced to do that in the past, right? And we know what they are. And lobbying can hold back the tide. You know, you put a finger in the damn shore. But at some point, it comes back. 
And the same way that when January 6th happened in the United States, it wasn't a surprise. I mean, good God, we had genocide in Myanmar, right? We had what's happening in the Philippines. We had Sri Lanka. That wasn't a surprise. And I didn't like seeing it happen. But Silicon Valley since came home to roost. And frankly, these are American companies. Americans should hold them accountable. One of the reasons I was so concerned about the post-election period in the United States was because Mark Zuckerberg said we should be concerned about it. And I figured he had an enormous amount of data on the situation and probably knew more about it than most. And so when he kind of came out warning about post-election violence or civic unrest after, uh, you know, in the fall, early, early fall of 2020, that struck me as a, a big deal, you know, that he would give us that warning. Certainly he doesn't give that warning to everyone. I think they now know exactly what it is. And this is political will. This is called leadership. I mean, frankly, it's called accountability. I think from both behind the scenes, there's so many of us who work with them. I'm still a partner because Facebook, the social media platform. So Facebook is the world's largest delivery platform for news. How crazy is that? And the design of the platform prioritizes the spread of lies laced with anger and hate over facts. So you can really say that the platform that delivers the news today is biased against facts and is biased against journalists. How crazy is that? I mean, is this a surprise that we are where we are today? Let me ask you a little bit. There's been a conversation in the United States around uh, polarization, the question of kind of causality in this argument about whether it's tech and media that's driving divisiveness or whether the problem is fundamentally from someplace else. What do you think about that question? I mean, putting aside the idea that some of the divisiveness, of course, is occurring on, on social media, where do you think the, I mean, we're seeing democracies kind of stumble all across the world. Where do you think that primarily comes from? What's primarily driving? Technology. Technology. So? Yeah. And I'll tell you why. Look, I've I've reported, uh, let me let me dump a few of these, right? Like so in Ambon in 1999, Muslim Christian violence, a little spark, you know, leaders struggle to hold conflict, to, to pull conflict apart. So these fracture lines of society do not combust, right? In Ambon, one news report. That was actually accurate. And this was an Indonesian newspaper that just reported that a, a grenade was thrown into a mosque, triggered Muslim Christian violence because of our nature. So that to me is the, the perfect situation of what you're talking about. Yes, it is within our nature. Humanity as a whole, right? We will deal with conflict and wars have started from forever. But what hasn't been there has been the constant machine that nudges your worst self, right? And when these kind of exponential bottom-up nudges, i.e. they are seeding some of these influence operations, seed meta-narratives of actual lies. A perfect example is election fraud, right? The actual lie that came out of President Trump's mouth was seeded a year earlier in August 2019 on RT, picked up by Steve Bannon on YouTube, seeded in closed Facebook groups before Tucker Carlson comes down with it August 2020, QAnon drops it, and then President Trump comes top down. It is this convergence 
of human nature, yes, of technology that makes facts debatable, that makes you doubt facts, that over time, so think that like we are Pavlov's dogs. We are being taught responses to things, right? Playing with, uh, E.O. Wilson said this, our paleolithic emotions. Um, that's all new. We've never had something like that. So I've seen how fragile society is. I've seen civil society kind of try to marry this. And Yael Eisenstadt will, will tell you this, right? She's done this work in Kenya. And it's not that hard to bring warring groups together to the table. Although I guess if you look at the Middle East, it, it keeps recurring. But we have real leaders trying to heal the division. Well, what happens when in the middle of crucial talks, someone throws a match into the discussion? That's what happens in every conversation on social media today because it is by design. So I've seen in the Philippines, a country that doesn't have a CNN versus Fox, right? We're a country where the facts were not debatable in 2016. And all of us started pretty much in the center. We don't have polarization in news groups. So we agree on the facts. But with the, the election of Duterte, with very similar style of Trump, right? Us against them. The very same decisions made by tech platforms of how they grow, how they nudge you to grow your, your platform and grow theirs by extension, right? One, uh, actually, I'll do two technical decisions that are good for making money and that keeps us engaged. So the first decision is to recommend friends of friends, algorithms that do that, right? To keep you on the site. So when that happened after Duterte was elected in the Philippines, here we are in the center, but he really truly did us against them. If you're not with us, you're against us. So his supporters, to grow their networks, the pro-Duterte folks move further right. The anti-Duterte folks move further left. That's 2016. And that's connected to a drug war because the meta-narrative being seeded then is it's okay to kill. Who says that, right? Now think 2021. Because each year, that division, because of the algorithm of friends of friends, just keeps getting wider. Instead of pulling groups together, you rip them apart. That's the first tech decision. And that is all social media platforms, right? That's not just Facebook. The second one is content, what they call personalization. We don't use this on Rappler precisely because I don't believe in it. It doesn't make sense because personalization leads you to your own reality. How is that possible? You live in the real world. The other part is as we're divided, the kind of content you are fed, the groups you're asked to join. And this would be YouTube. I mean, in YouTube, the division there, the algorithm for, you know, if you click on a 9-11 conspiracy theory, you're brought down the rabbit hole. This is now all documented. But on Facebook, so in 2018, news groups were, were pushed aside, right, for groups, family and friends. I think the idea here is that well, we don't want to see it. So you can just keep your disinformation in your small little groups. They're not small. So anyway, huh, sorry. So what happens in, in these groups? When you click on a group, you are then brought down the rabbit hole and the radicalization is no longer in the public, but you have the ability to spread it. So you divide and you radicalize. That is what the delivery platform of news 
does today. As a journalist, that's shocking to me because, you know, as a reporter, you have to have the humility, uh, the standards and ethics manual of the news groups I've been part of really show you that you, you never know, you don't know what's right. From whatever precipice or whatever crisis you're reporting on, you don't know what the solution is and you're not the actor. So you want to arm people with the information so they have the context for the world they're living in. But the solution is theirs. These social media platforms are actually driving reality. That's scary. It's such arrogance. Maria, um, so let me ask you this. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg uh, essentially rejected some of these ideas in, in front of Congress a couple of weeks ago. Um, he said that you know, uh, there's scant evidence that social media drives polarization. And, uh, you know, subsequently his VP of public policy kind of pointed to some specific studies and um, some idea that essentially polarization in the, the, the kind of specific definition of it they're referring to was increasing before social media even existed. So that's number one. Number two, Mark Zuckerberg denied this idea that their business model is about engagement or keeping people online, you know, that that's what it's all about. If he was here, what would you say to him? So the studies have already shown this. You know, there's a great book by Sina Naral at MIT. There's a 750-page book by Shoshana Zuboff. So Sina Naral's book is called The Hype Machine. Uh, Shoshana Zuboff's book is Surveillance, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. 750 pages, right? It's hard to go up against such a powerful man who's never been elected. But the reality is I see its impact. So I live it. Um, I've seen it here. Uh, he can actually, whatever they want to do, they can point to the shifts globally. I've covered this, right? And what I've seen in the cycle, so I'm, it's, I've been a journalist for 35 years. And, and in, South, in Asia, South Asia and Southeast Asia, what we've seen is, you know, starting 2014, I think there's a dovetail of global events and, and kind of the zeitgeist. And then the Tinder that, you know, or the match that set the kindling on fire was social media. What I was starting to see just looking at this, and the if you go to the hype machine, CNN will show you that the disinformation, the information operations, really, the experiments began in 2012. They really erupted in 2014 in the, in the Ukraine. The success in the Ukraine, and that was pretty incredible if you think about it like this. Are we, you know, the there's a significant impact of those influence operations that the world doubts. Well, the, we don't doubt that this was annexation, annexation versus the people in the in the in Crimea asking Russia to come in, right? The fact that, well, it drove policy, the fact that there were two alternate realities, and then because of that success, it, it moved to the dominoes falling in 2016. And I would say, you know, the Cambridge Analytica whistleblower, Chris Wiley, Brittany Kaiser also had, had said that SCL, the parent company of Cambridge Analytica, was working in the Philippines and SCL uh, and Cambridge Analytica itself was working in the Philippines. Alexander Nix had visited the Philippines in 2015, November 2015. We have him in pictures with Duterte's team. 
for the sixth year in a row, Filipinos spend the most time on social media. We were, Chris Wiley calls us a petri dish, and that they tested these tactics of mass manipulation here. And, and then when they worked, they ported it over to the West. I've said that so many times. I'm so tired of it, but we say it again. And they try it there because, you know, they can get away with it. There's they can get away with it, though. yeah. Yeah. But look at how quickly they they reacted in the U.S. for for Mark Zuckerberg. I think they also had a panic button. That I guess the other part that I see is this: as we have coronavirus in the real world, think about the information ecosystem because that's what I study: information cascades. I used to study how the the virulent ideology of terrorism spreads, right? First in the physical world and then in the virtual world. I wrote a book called "From Bin Laden to Facebook." In right before ISIS, right? Right before, because because in 2011, there were Filipinos calling for global jihad in Arabic on YouTube. In, and they were, by 2012, 2013, using YouTube to negotiate for ransom. So we saw it here. Anyway, um, as you have a virus, coronavirus in the real world, think about the information ecosystem as having its own virus. It's a virus of lies. It's very contagious and it's seeded. And when you get infected, you become impervious to facts. So it's, it's, you're infected. And so fast forward to your, to your January 6, the people who went there believed in what they were doing and they're not going to go away. The division in American society, the division in all of our societies that are being pounded open on social media what happens on social media? Online violence doesn't stay online. It erupts in the real world. And we have far more evidence of this now than any denial you can have. Human nature in 2014, simultaneous as this was this trend on social media was happening, the influence operations as Russia was doing that, which by the way, now China's doing it. Facebook took down information operations against me. September 2020, last year, right? So they were targeting me, but these were Chinese influence operations. They were coming from China. They were also setting up fake accounts in the U.S. using AI-generated photos, right? So anyway, this was taken down last year. So Russia, China, you know the, the countries that do it. And they're not separate from the domestic players. I don't know. Americans tend to think that there's domestic, there's international just like terrorism, homegrown groups are hijacked by global groups, right? That's what we've seen with Al-Qaeda. What did Al-Qaeda do? They took the homegrown networks and gave them a global purpose against the West. The person who told me that was Benazir Bhutto. And our evidence showed it time after time. In 2014, what I saw in my part of the world was this nostalgia for a strongman ruler because the world had just gotten so much more complex. People didn't want to make, to, people couldn't keep up with the change. And I saw this even in my family, right? When gay marriage, all of a sudden, and you had Caitlyn Jenner, right? I saw like folks struggling with what does this mean? Older folks in particular. And what does that mean about my own value system? So when it got too complicated, there was this kind of, and I saw this in Indonesia, in the Philippines, in India, looking for someone else. Someone else can make these decisions. It was so much better before. So who comes up in India? Modi is elected. Shocking because in 2004, he was dealing with human rights violations. In Indonesia, the son-in-law 
of Suharto, a former president Suharto, so Prabowo Subianto, almost wins. Shocking because uh, I was there in Indonesia. I covered that transition, the end of nearly 32 years of Suharto's rule, right? But there is this yearning that the world is just too complex. That yearning, that emotion goes right back to the design of social media. E.O. Wilson said this, right? And he's not a social media person. What he does do is he studies ants and emergent behavior. Uh, and what he said is that the biggest crisis is this convergence of our paleolithic emotions, our medieval institutions, and godlike technology. The evidence is there. The denial is putting your finger in the dam so the business model can keep going. So you're, you're kind of taking us to a place of maybe thinking about historical context and the bigger you know, lens on this. How long does it take for us to figure out how to live with the internet? What is this trajectory look like? How long does it take for us to, to choke down this technology? And, and does democracy survive along the way? Is this a decades-long thing that we're going to contend with? I hope not, because if that's the case, I, I really could go to jail, right? Yeah, I mean, I hope it's not the decades thing. But yeah. look, I mean, I think the first thing is for all journalists also need to understand the tech. We don't in general, right? The, we still think the world is what it used to be, that power. Like there are massive shifts in power globally. The global institutions are eroding. I mean, because, because there is both the social media influence operations and then the geopolitical power play. It is happening. And again, even in that, the Philippines is, you know, in there's a war for uh, the proxy war between the U.S. and China. We become yet another flashpoint in this. But look, I just got this Four Freedoms Award and the granddaughter of Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Eleanor Roosevelt reminded me that FDR gave this speech to Congress on January 6, 1941, about the four freedoms and how it is global, how universal it is, and how fragile it is. January 6, this year, we know, right? So 80 years later, the four freedoms are so fragile, despite the Biden win, right? Because you know, again, the social media platforms came together just enough to prevent another four years, but the people who have been infected are there. The flashpoints are there. We have to act like we did post-World War II after the atom bomb exploded, the twin atom bombs, right? Because I think at that point, the people who created the atom bomb, the United States, Japan, right? The world was in shock, but that is because of the the detonation and the impact of this, of what humanity did to itself. And we came together, the world came together because of that. So I hope we don't, this destruction on this massive scale has happened on social media. People have died globally. And I guess the, the solution to this is for all of us to realize we don't have the structures and somehow move into this emergency mode to try to prevent this from happening again. Globally coming together, coming back to the point where we created a universal declaration of human rights. Eleanor Roosevelt was a driver in that, right? And Bretton Woods, NATO, all of these things are now outdated. 
And, and it's ironic that the very groups that have power, i.e. governments, i.e. powerful organizations, do not know how to deal with, they, with this asymmetrical power play that has just washed them away like a tidal wave. Because that's the truth. That's the reality we live with. So now what are, what are they going to do? Well, the European Union is a little bit ahead because it comes, came out with a democracy action plan. It has a draft of a Digital Services Act and a Marketing Services Act. The UK has its online harms bill. The United States, which actually could do us all a favor and, and enact the laws they have in the real world, in the virtual world, right? Instead of giving these loopholes, the United States is still looking at Section 230, but the impact is documented. I mean, I asked this from Hillary last night. Has anything been done about the way she's been attacked, the influence or the information operations that have been launched against her, if that had been done in the real world, what would have happened, right? You've kind of given me a, a, an impression of where we, to get to the future, what we have to do, which is to create those institutions and to have those summits. I know uh, Joe Biden wants to have a summit of democracies, and there's some talk about potentially having a focus on tech at that. Um, there are other things I'm seeing get built. The EU is building a kind of, you know, um, set of academic centers to study disinformation, which is which is promising. Um, and there has been an enormous amount of funding into these problems in institutions and centers and university programs in, in the United States that I think will produce the kind of intellectual foment that may lead to some of those those initiatives you're, you're talking about. But it's going to take a while. I, my, I guess my fear is that, again, it takes longer than some of us have. Yes. A lot of that research is also funded by the very same platforms. Mm -hmm. And sure. the researchers themselves are being set off against each other. That, We're going to have to be are, careful with that. Yeah. Those are rabbit holes, right? Yeah. And again, like I feel like I watch the U.S. closely, but even this debate, I mean, it's not that debatable. You know, the impact mm -hmm. is already clear. It's documented and we are going to have to move on to find the action point. But as long as you're bickering amongst yourselves, <laughs> then people like us, because we don't have a seat at the table, right? We just, I mean, you allow it to happen. We have to we, do more, don't we? Yeah. Yes, you do. <laughs> just, well, I know you do a lot, Justin, but yeah. you know, I think Yael also has done, has, has raised the alarm, but I worry about, you know, the deflection um, mm -hmm. because yeah. that takes away. I, the, my biggest wish is that, and all the social media platforms will say this, you can't solve a problem until you define it. They already know the problem. As long as they're deflecting, that to me means danger because they know the problem. Define it, own it, solve it. Even these uh, recent post facto justifications from Nick Clegg or Mark Zuckerberg, they refer to outside research, which relies on the slivers of data that some researchers are able to get. They, they don't let us see the internal research that former employees say, you know, is what drove them to be concerned and to leave the company. I don't know. There's quite a lot to be worried about there. There was recently this HBO documentary about QAnon. I don't know if it's, you've seen it there yet or it's made its way there, but half of it seemed to be filmed in Manila 
with Jim and Ron Watkins. Um, oh yeah. 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 Um, of course. Yes. We have a link shots? to everything. Yeah. Yes. Um, so, you know, I can send you some of this stuff, but uh-huh. you know, back to hotmail when, mm-hmm. when they were trying to deal with email spam and, and both the bad guys and the good guys, there were cottage industries in the Philippines, right? Internet fraud, for example, there's, if you look at the security risks in this, because I went back all the way to the Hotmail era, and uh, I don't know if you remember Mega Upload, for mm-hmm. example. Yeah. The the founder of Mega Upload was married to a Filipina. She went with him to New Zealand. Um, the QAnon link is there, and he left. I, I think Frederick Brennan left after someone filed charges of cyber libel. Right, so that so we have always had some. Ro- I really hate this, but it's not just the internet. It's also look nine eleven. Um, that was a lot of what I did with with CNN after the nine eleven attacks. Because when I watched the planes crash into the buildings, I was on a treadmill in Jakarta. It was evening our time, and the the planes crashing in the buildings was a memory for me, because in nineteen ninety four I had read interrogation documents of probably the guy who who would have been the first pilot recruited by Al-Qaeda. It wasn't called Al-Qaeda then, right? He's in Supermax prison in Colorado. And so I so my my career has actually been about these looking at the testing ground. We have been a testing ground. In 1994, the the mastermind of the 9/11 attacks, his name's Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, lived in the Philippines. His nephew was Ramzi Youssef, the guy who did the World Trade Center attacks in 1993, right? So anyway, so what I'm saying is that from the terrorist attacks, they they came here because they tested uh, shoe bomber, the shoe bombing plot that came out in London uh, in 2001 or 2000, 2002, well, whatever. that was tested here in 1994. A Philippine Airlines flight, a liquid bomb was smuggled on a on a on a uh, flight to Tokyo. One guy was killed during that time period. I had all these intelligence documents, and these were things. Why did they come to the Philippines? Because we had the same security systems in our airport as the United States, and so if they could get through them here, they knew they could do that in the states. Why did we do that? Because we're a former colony. And because a lot of our systems are imported from the United States. So let's go to the internet fraud and the homegrown industries that are fake, the fake, and they just keep shifting, right? When when Hotmail, when when they were able to, to actually control spam, then it moved to something else. It's, it's a cottage industry. Well, you saw in QAnon, our link there, it's, I don't know whether... I'm drawing too broad a brushstroke, but I can give you the, we've done papers on this where we show you how these kind of cottage industries evolved mm-hmm. over time to now become fake news industries, i.e. you have like, you know, little uh, offices in Manila, in Cebu, where you have rows of cell phones that have their own unique number that are creating their Facebook account. So this is a whole black market system. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, sorry. It, it, no, no, I, I wanted to ask you about it for precisely that reason, because you could, you could really kind of see that this, uh, you know, Jim and Ron Watkins, um, clearly scammers, you know, making money off the worst bits of the internet, pornography, pornography, right. Yeah. The pornography that was here, even yeah. now there was, um, you know, and our government, the Duterte administration actually encouraged online gambling at some mm-hmm. point. 
pogos are what they they're called you know so yes um it's the weakness of the system it's right. what is okay in one country is not okay in another and and they they simply sort of just i don't know emerge from there into this other thing this other grift politics which turns out to be a pretty good grift too and it's it's kind of hard to tell whether they believe any of this stuff but maybe they do you know on some level does it matter i don't know yeah uh, i i don't think they need to believe in it Right. And I, that's exactly what we're seeing. Like I, the most recent maps I, we've made of the virtual world in the Philippines um, still show asymmetrical warfare. And look, when you have online violence and hate and then real world violence and fear, these things combine and they do not. That's the other part that's shocking to me when, when Facebook says these things. They don't live in our environment. It changes you, right? And they contribute to that massive shift and the emergent behavior that comes out of it. That's the other thing I don't hear them talk about. And I asked, I've asked about it a lot because we are training humanity, the 2.8 million accounts, to be a certain way. And, you know, the short-term goal of money doesn't justify it. They, you, we've got to ask them questions about morality. Well, anyway, I'll shut up. You well, know, so, uh, sorry. And, and maybe we'll leave it there. But that that was that final defense that um, you know Nick Clegg and, and ultimately Mark Zuckerberg make this idea, the Silicon Valley idea of the user, you know, as being this rational agent who's perfectly in charge of their facilities and um, making intelligent decisions um, and not affected by the behavior of the network. It's 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 a it's a tango, it's a dance, you know, Facebook works for me. That's laughable. I've seen it in the real world. Um, Facebook doesn't work for you. If it did, then you wouldn't see all the data that you're seeing now about how we're being manipulated. It is a behavior modification system and we are Pavlov's dogs and that shouldn't be legal, right? Like. That I guess part of it is this, the insidious manipulation that we live with now on a day-to-day -day basis. I don't know if you saw um, if you saw this, but I can send it to you. Jason just, Jason Kent just retweeted this, but yesterday I saw, you know, one of the accounts, and I think he's from India or Pakistan, but one of the accounts, the 533 million that were compromised, he went and got his data. And then he looked at, he showed, he did a video showing all of the data that Facebook had on him, including when he ordered pizza, when he uh, applied to a university, um, and then the way it put it. I mean, I like the way Tristan Harris said this, you know, it's like you went to a psychologist or a psychiatrist and then that psychiatrist took your weakest moments and then said, let me sell it, right? So I, again, for me, we can rationalize anything you know, you can make an argument for anything. But as long as the social media platforms are in denial, they cannot be part of the solution. And the sooner they get out of denial, the faster we globally we can find a solution. Because I, I do think that they're part of the future. It's They're too big, right? If they fail, we wind up failing as well. And I, like I said, this virus of lies impacts real people, changes their worldview, right? How, how can you take, I mean, let's just talk conscience, but you know. I want to thank you for everything you are doing and thank you for um, this sort of constant energy that I feel 
uh, emerging from you, um, you know, on these issues. So I'm very no, grateful Justin, for all your you have to you have to keep working at it too, you know. Yeah. So- That's it for this week's show. I hope you will send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at Tech Policy Press or find us on Twitter at Tech Policy Press. Thanks to Romy Geller, Brian Jones, our guests, and thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.